top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. On today's show, we'll be talking to Christy Erickson, Deputy Executive Director of the History Museum in South Bend, Indiana. Her museum has two specific exhibits that will be of particular interest to those of you who are fans of the Irish Baseball Podcast or are members of the Irish American Baseball Society. Christy, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So there are two particular reasons that I think people who listen to the Irish Baseball Podcast would want to check out your museum. The first one we're going to talk about is your tribute to women's baseball. Because obviously, as anybody who has seen a league of their own knows, South Bend was huge in women's baseball during World War II. And you have an exhibit paying tribute to some of the women who played in this league. Can you just describe what you have and how you are paying tribute to these pioneers of baseball? Absolutely. Um, So the pioneers you're speaking of is the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which, as you mentioned, if you've seen the movie or now the TV show, A League of Their Own, you'll be familiar with how that got started. But um, when World War II broke out, there was a lot of fear by Major League Baseball people that um, a lot of the players were going to get drafted, that um, Major League Baseball was um, not going to be able to keep playing. And so Philip K. Wrigley, um, chewing gum magnate, decided he uh, was going to recruit women to play women's baseball, kind of as a curiosity, and started having tryouts. Now, The All-American Girls Professional Baseball League played from 1943 until 1954 and had um, teams all across the Midwest. And our museum is very fortunate to be the national repository for the league. So we have a permanent exhibit, which is called First in Their Field, paying tribute to different aspects of the league. Um, Currently, we have information on what a lot of the women did after they stopped playing baseball how the Players Association was formed, and how they were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, how the movie got started. Um, But we also just have um, information about the different teams and the different players and and kind of how um, they really blazed the trail for women to be able to play professional baseball. So we have uniforms and baseballs and bats and but also photos we have um, things like scrapbooks and journals and and um, a lot of their memories and recollections of what life was like you know traveling on a bus for hours and hours to go to the next home game with these women that were um, oftentimes the only people you would interact with for months of your life and became their best friends. And that's, you know, why they got together later in life is because they wanted to see each other and, and trade stories. And we're very fortunate to be a part of that. So people who just follow general American history know that when women went to work in huge numbers during World War II, that sort of kicked off a lot of not only the feminist movement, but just women wanting to continue to make their own money. Going back to that role of being in the house, 
was something that some of the women didn't want to do after they started getting their own paychecks. They started to have a little more autonomy. I would imagine, as you look at the lives of some of these baseball players, after they had this really, really unique experience, that you found that a lot of them had a hard time? Or is it the opposite? Did they kind of enjoy going back to a more normal, stable life? Sometimes you find it's a little bit of both. Um, As you might imagine, the people who are attracted to playing professional sports sometimes have a certain type of independent personality. And uh, a number of the women that I've met or that I've learned about who were former professional baseball players, um, when the league folded, ended up playing professional softball for a long time after that, or um, ended up doing other athletic pursuits as um, their life went on. Uh, One woman named Betsy Jockham, who played for the South Bend Blue Sox here in town, she's currently 101 years old um, and has been involved with our museum for many years. Um, She taught gym at a local school. And so you meet a lot of those people, um, they become doctors or they become um, just lots of different, very interesting lives. In the 1950s, after World War II ended, um, Americans in general kind of were looking for um, a return to a more traditional life. They were kind of looking back to what their life was like before the war and um, wanted things to be more quote-unquote normal so you'll also meet people who just wanted things to be like they were and that's what they wanted to do was they had a great time playing baseball and then they wanted to go back to a more traditional role at the time so um like any group of people you'll you'll get all sorts but um often I find that the women I've met who played ball are uh some of the most interesting people I've met so um and they're all very lovely and charming So I know a lot of people have watched the show, and of course the movie by this point is an absolute classic, and we see lots of full stands in the movie. Was it as popular as it is being portrayed? Were these games drawing big-time crowds at the time? Well, um, like any story, there's a little bit of dramatization for Hollywood, (laughs) but um, it was eventually very popular uh most of the time when you watch especially in the in the movie with um tom hanks and gina davis you know it's it's often the very first season that they played because people want to tell that story of the women getting um going to the tryouts and being recruited and having to go to charm school and and things like that and so then all of a sudden the stands are full and it's a big hit and in a lot of places that was the case but in some places it wasn't so much and when the league first started, there were four teams, um, and the teams were the Rockford Peaches, the South Bend Blue Sox, the Kenosha Comets, and the Racing Bells. And um, eventually, those expanded to many more cities, but there were a few cities that Wrigley tried to start teams in that didn't really work out, that there wasn't a lot of support, that maybe had very strong amateur men's teams that um, weren't so willing to go away from what was already going on there. So for example, um, the Minneapolis Millerettes um, only lasted for a year and ended up moving to Fort Wayne and became the Fort Wayne Daisies and then were very successful in Fort Wayne after that. So the team um, saw their peak at the end of the 1940s. There was, um, at their height, they saw 
I believe 900,000 people coming to games and um, many people remember coming to see them play. They were recommended to play in the evening so that when people were in the factories um, working on essential war products, they uh, could still leave and see baseball games and, and kind of have that morale boost. So I expect that a number of the women maybe didn't see full stands at every game in their very first season, but it certainly was very popular eventually as, as it kind of gained momentum and gained notoriety. And is there a reason beyond just Wrigley being based in the Midwest that it was so focused on the Midwest? Did they feel that that was a market that was ripe for needing more entertainment during the war? Because maybe some of the bigger cities on the East Coast still had a number of ways to entertain people during the war, or was it just proximity to Wrigley himself? Um, a little bit of both. There were fears that Major League Baseball would stop, but it never actually stopped. So um, the larger cities still had um, their regular teams playing. Philip Wrigley um, was the owner of the Chicago Cubs, and he had grand dreams of his women's baseball league coming to play at Wrigley Field to huge crowds in Chicago, but he didn't feel like starting there was the, the thing to do. So he started in kind of more, I want to say, medium-sized cities um, to get the excitement going there where they didn't have as ready access to professional players because um, they were very skilled. Uh, many of them, uh, coaches remarked that, you know, they would be, um, they would hire them in an instant to play on their men's team, but of course that wasn't allowed. And, um, and as that went on, he wanted to see them play in Chicago, but um, the Chicago Colleen's um, didn't really work out for him. So it, it just kind of ended up in that around Chicago, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. And I never really thought of it until right now. So I have no basis in whether this is true or not. But I would also imagine that while Major League Baseball did continue to go through the war, I would imagine a ton of minor league baseball teams either suspended operations or just folded altogether because there would have been no way to keep up some of those teams that would have played in towns like South Bend or Racine that would have been men's teams. Mm. Yeah, I um, I would expect that's the case. I, I don't know that I know the answer to that. Though, but. And then, of course, we are the Irish Baseball Podcast, so mm -hmm. we have an absolute ton of Notre Dame fans who are regular listeners to the show. And being in South Bend you have a special exhibit based on the university. So why don't you talk about that exhibit as well? Sure. So we have um, a permanent exhibit on Notre Dame history. And right now the exhibit in there is called The Fabric of a Global University. And it's about Notre Dame International and Notre Dame's international um, efforts to um, have uh, what they have is... Um, centers in different parts of the country. And, you know, two thirds of Notre Dame students um, study abroad at some point and they go to all these different places. And Notre Dame is involved in so many um, activities outside of the United States. Um, there's a center in Ireland, there's one in London, there's one in Asia, South America, and kind of using those resources and um, 
as a way to promote things like um, expanding agriculture in certain places or um, medical research. You know, we have a little bit of information about one of their groups that makes um, prosthetic eyes and uses those to combat um you know, if you have a retina scanner these days, uh, you don't want people to make prosthetic eyes and be able to break into your secure facility. So Notre Dame does research in ways to stop people from doing that, um, which is very interesting. And, you know, a lot of times people in this area think of Notre Dame as kind of its own little country in the middle of South Bend. And <laughs> they um, are very interested in kind of making sure that their students get that experience off campus in the community and around the world. So um, in Ireland, they go to Kylemore Abbey and other places in the country and learn about Irish culture and dance and cuisine and attend different colleges and, and kind of continue that relationship that um, Notre Dame has with Ireland, going back to when Father Soren was recruiting Irish people to um, come in and work on the campus when it first got started. So um, there's a reason that they became the Fighting Irish. I do think there is a connection that a lot of people have to Notre Dame beyond just the fighting Irish connection. And that is that, you know, we talk about the football program in recent years, like the women's basketball program has been world-class, a lot of Mm world-class soccer, really great college athletics. But the point seems to be for a lot of fans of Notre Dame sports is not just that they have great sports, but that it is a great school that happens to have great sports. And it seems like this exhibit is really showing that academic aspect of Notre Dame and what they're trying to do with the platform that maybe they have created because of the sports and move into doing some of these really, really great things. Absolutely. You know, Notre Dame sports is obviously a um, an important part of that tradition of being on campus you know we've all here in town been to a tailgate on campus and and even my friends who have never been to a Notre Dame game I'm like well you have to go at least once just so you can kind of experience what that's like but um it's important that uh they use like you said they use that platform to um expand that influence to make the world a better place and to bring aspects from all around the globe and um, even from just this community to enrich students' lives and to make them um, better citizens of the world. So um, that's kind of the total package there in one college here. And I have no idea how on the Irish baseball podcast, I mentioned football, women's basketball, I mentioned soccer, and I didn't mention that Notre Dame baseball made it to the College World Series this year. How did I miss that <laughs> on a baseball podcast? But I did definitely want to mention that. So Christy Erickson, Deputy Executive Director of The History Museum in South Bend, Indiana. How can people come visit some of these exhibits, see them? Maybe they're in town to see a Notre Dame sporting event, or they're just driving through on their way to Chicago. How can they stop and experience some of these exhibits? Yeah, so our museum is open seven days a week. 
Um, and if you visit our website at historymuseumsb, like southbend.org, um, you can see what our hours are and, and get directions to our campus. We actually share this campus with another museum, which is the Studebaker National Museum. Um, we have a 1897 historic home with all the original furnishings that you can tour. So uh, if you come to visit us, you can get uh, one ticket and see all of these things and spend, um, some people even take two days to see it all. So we've got something to offer for everybody here. And we'd love to have anybody who'd like to visit. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this conversation, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure being on your show. This has been episode 48 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. With the holidays here, it's time to start thinking about some gear from the Irish American Baseball Society to put under the tree for that special someone. My wife, Courtney, actually decided to ruin the surprise by getting me a personalized Irish baseball jersey in a 4XL because I like to wear them baggy. She also made the number 24 in honor of our anniversary, and she had my Irish grandfather's last name put on the back. Go to irishbaseball.org to order something for a loved one or just to treat yourself. Spring training is just a little over three months away at this point, and you need to look good for it. irishbaseball.org Thanks for listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org and connect with us on social media. And remember, there's no place like home.